Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport past and present, and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles. But what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre, and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX-75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. So today, Mike, we're going to look at fuel systems. So does that mean we won't be talking about electric vehicles, EVs? Yeah, we're talking about fuel systems, Kevin. And you're right. um, As a result, it's not energy systems. So it's probably one of our few conversations where we don't, you know, talk specifically about EVs. But, you know, for me, like EVs are not a different thing. So there's sometimes a a narrative that EVs are a whole different type of vehicle. They're merely a continuation of sort of the development of the automotive technology that we talk about each time. So for instance, in this conversation, we'll we'll talk for a little bit about the electronic fuel control systems that were developed in the 60s. And you can trace a direct path from those control systems right through to the battery management systems that you would see on an EV today. Okay, so what fuels are going to look at? Petrol, diesel, I presume hydrogen? Yeah, that's exactly. So the big two, gasoline, diesel, and we'll, we'll touch on hydrogen. Over the history of cars, there were other actually successful fuel types. So you can think of LPG, um, LPG or ethanol, but today we're just going to focus on those sort of those big three. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Where did all of this begin? So right at the start, actually. So very first car, 1885, the, the Benz Motorwagen. We spoke about this car before, actually. Did. So yeah. it was a petrol engine and it used a carburetor um, to correctly mix the air and the fuel. In 1888, Carl Benz's wife, Bertha Benz, she wanted to show that that car had more commercial um, opportunities or more commercial opportunities with that car than her husband thought at the time. So she decided to take the car on a long distance journey and she brought it uh, on a round trip of about 105 kilometers, which is now considered to be the first long distance trip for any car. But of course, at that time, there were no fuel stations. So to fuel a car, she used a substance called Ligron, which is it's a derivation of petrol. And it was used as a cleaning substance. And she would have bought that at pharmacies on the route. But actually, then from there, sort of from those early stages, then gasoline, you know, rapidly became the fuel type that was most popular for cars. Oh, brilliant. What a powerful lady. So she she changed his mind as to the commercial aspects of the car. Oh, she did. Yeah. So so Ben's, I mean, it, what it said that Ben's himself didn't actually think there was much opportunity. And she was uh, his business partner. She'd been an early investor in his company. And she recognized that there was huge opportunity with these cars. And this was her this was her demonstration. Cool. Very good. So you mentioned the carburetor. That is important in fuel system history. Yeah. So the carburetor um, is it's a mechanical device. Its purpose is to correctly mix the air and fuel um, before it goes into the engine. So the way it does that is air is being drawn into the engine. As that air has been drawn in, it creates a low pressure within the carburetor. 
and that in turn draws in the correct amount of fuel. So it's it's a it's a self-regulating device. And carburetors were the most popular method of providing the correct fuel mixture right up until the 1980s. Still have them on cars today, but nowadays fuel injection systems are much more prevalent, much more common. So in a modern fuel injection system, the fuel-air mixture, it's, it's held at a very high pressure in a fuel rail and it's mixed outside the engine and then it's, di- it's injected directly into the combustion chamber of the engine. But actually, injection systems were seen on diesel engines long before they were seen on petrol engines. All right, then. So, so how early did diesel engines begin to be used? So diesels, diesels were invented around the same time as gasoline, so in, back into the 1800s. Now, so the diesel engine was invented by um, a guy called Rudolf Diesel. We tend to think of diesel as being a particular type of fuel or a particular type of liquid. Actually, diesel fuel is any fuel that can operate in what's called a compression ignition engine. So in a petrol engine, the piston is rising and it compresses that fuel-air mixture uh, into a very high pressure. And then a spark plug ignites that mixture. In a diesel engine, you have the piston rising, compressing the fuel-air mixture. But when it compresses it into high pressure and high temperature, it actually self-ignites. And that's the difference between a, a diesel and a petrol. Right. Okay. Fully understood. So pros and cons of that. Right. So, so we, you know, diesels are very popular in cars today. They're, you know, they would be the most popular in trucks and vans. The reason for that is diesel is actually more efficient and it's more energy dense than petrol. But because of that self-combustion method, there's actually a limit to how fast a diesel engine can spin. So how fast it can turn over. and in order to create more power, it doesn't have the option of spinning faster and faster. So to create a more powerful diesel engine, you have to have a bigger capacity diesel engine. But petrol engines, on the other hand, you can spin the engine much more quickly. And that means you can create more power from a smaller capacity engine. So diesel are, diesels create a lot of torque and they're very efficient. And because, uh, because they tend to be bigger engines, that's why they, they're popular in vans and trucks. Whereas cars use the higher speed petrol engines to create more power in a smaller size. Okay, so bigger engine fits in a bigger vehicle, so that's going to be a truck. So when when were they first used in trucks? Back in 1908. So the German company MAN, just did a truck manufacturer today, they built the first diesel trucks. And then in 1923, Benz and MAN independently introduced diesel injection auto trucks. And then when was the obvious next step is injection? When was that brought into petrol cars? Yeah, it was quite a while later, actually. Um, Fuel injection, it's another one of these technologies that we've talked often about, Kevin, where it was invented or developed for aircraft and again for uh, during the wars. So in World War II, various fighters from Germany, Japan, Russia and Britain, they all had gasoline um, injection engines. And then after the war, the German company Bosch starts to play a really big role in fuel system development. So Bosch had developed some of those injection systems for the fighters, and they took those injection systems and they redeveloped them for automotive systems. The first car that had an injection, gasoline injection system on it, was the Mercedes-Benz Formula One car from 54. So that's the W196. It was the car that Fangio won the world championship, one of his world championships. Um, and then Mercedes took that Bosch gasoline injection system 
and they put it on what was the first car then to have an injection system, which was the 300SL, um, the Gullwing. So that we're up now in the 1950s. What would have been the next big step production-wise? Yeah, the, be- the next big step is actually how the fuel is man- managed. So we're still talking about Bosch. So in the 60s, Bosch were developing lots of electronic control systems. They had developed the ABS system that we spoke about quite a few times in the, in the braking episode. And then in 1968, the Volkswagen Type 3, or the 1600 as it was known sometimes, that was the first production car to be fitted with a system called a Bosch Jetronic, a fuel control system. So the Jetronic system measured intake manifold pressure, and it used that to calculate exactly how much fuel was needed in the engine at any point. And that Jetronic system that absolutely became the benchmark for all fuel control systems for easy the next 30 years after that. That's unusual that it, it controlled the technology for a 30-year period. That's that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So Bosch, Bosch developed it over and over. It's There was kind of um, multiple um, variants well, they, on it. They, they, they refined it. They refined yeah, they refined it. Yeah. it, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they had multiple variants, they, you know, Mechanics would recognize them as being the L jetronic or the K jetronic. Gotcha. And basically, as they developed, they added different different functions okay. onto the system. And was this just on German cars? Or did it was it just the Germans led the technology and it went to other vehicles as well? Then, yeah, exactly. So um, used on a lot of German cars, so Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, Mercedes Benz, but not just German cars. So Bosch, um, Bosch applied to manufacturers all over the world. So the Jetronic was on Bentley, Lotus, Nissan, Volvo, many, many others. Um, at a later point then, there's another variant called the Motronic system. So the Jetronic controls the fuel and the Motronic system controls the fuel and also controls the spark ignition. Um, so it's becoming a more intelligent or a smart control system. And that was first used on a BMW 7 Series in 1981. And the aim of the, this technology is fuel efficiency. But bringing yeah. it all together, it is fuel efficiency. It is entirely. You know, and again, quite a few times we talked about during the 80s and 90s, there was a big push towards uh, fuel efficiency. And that kept going through into the 2000s. And what we saw in the 2000s then, we saw a move towards sort of engine downsizing and turbocharging. So one particular thing that we saw was that a move away from four-cylinder engines, we see three-cylinder and even in fact, two-cylinder engines. So in 2011, Fiat released a version of the 500 called the Twin Air, and that had a two-cylinder 900cc engine. Also in 2011, Ford launched the three-cylinder EcoBoost engine, which was codenamed Fox. I was an integration engineer on that engine, actually. Right. Um, it was a highly efficient engine, and Ford um, launched it and put it into over 25 vehicles globally. And that engine was so advanced for its time in terms of fuel efficiency that it won the International Engine of the Year Award three years running. And it also held the sub one meter class in, in that award system for six years running. Wow. Congratulations on your success. Excellent. So we've talked about fuel systems and, and about the fuel injection into the engine. What about the other elements that make up the fuel system? Yeah. So there's, there are lots of, lots of components in the fuel system. The largest single component is at the other end of the car, so it's the fuel tank. Fuel tanks, you know, we often think think of them, or people tend to think of them as being a a simple reservoir of liquid, you know, maybe like a window washer bottle, but they're actually a very complex component. So primary function, yes, it's to store the liquid, 
but it also has to consider many, many other features as well. Well, this this wrecks my head, folks, because when we were doing our research into this podcast, I myself was amazed at the considerations to have to go into a fuel tank. I thought it was just a box that fuel went into. So um, this is a hell of an education. Where you go, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on in the fuel tank. So let's start with where it's positioned in the car. So the fuel tank itself, it represents a significant mass. So if you take the structure of the tank and you fill it with fuel, it can have 50 to 70 kilos. And then as the fuel is used, as you're driving along, the weight is reducing. So you're taking away that fuel. And also the center of gravity position is changing because the fuel is dropping, fuel levels are dropping. And both of those, the weight and the center of gravity, they have an effect on vehicle dynamics. So when the car is being laid out at the start, the position of the fuel tank has to be considered very, very carefully. And also obvious, but I never considered it. <laughs> never yeah, did. yeah, absolutely. And and so vehicle dynamics um, is, and there's another factor of vehicle dynamics, which is as you drive around in the car, the fuel is actually moving in the tank. So if you think of it, you have this 50 kilos and it's actually sloshing around in the tank moving as the car sort of accelerates and brakes and corners. So internally in the fuel tank, there's actually a complicated set of reservoirs and baffle walls. And those baffle walls, they stop the fuel sloshing around, but they also have to ensure that the fuel can always be picked up. So they always have to ensure that there is always fuel at the pump or at the point where, where it gets picked up. The structure of the tank then, in a modern car, they're either steel or aluminium or increasingly uh, they're injection molded plastic. The fuel tank itself, the structure, it has to be impact resistant so it ha- and it has to be pierce resistant. So, you know, um, poles or stakes and things like that can't um, can't um, breach it. And it also has to be able to withstand all the various shocks and bumps that you get in the vehicle. The other thing is they have to be fire resistant for you know obvious reasons, a highly volatile flammable liquid inside. So in fact, in the safety testing, and we'll talk about safety testing actually in a later episode, but in the safety testing for vehicles, there's one particular test called a grass fire test. And in that, a tray of burning material is put under the fuel tank. And, and, and the fuel tank has to be able to withstand that, that flame or that fire without the, the petrol inside going on um, igniting. And that test came about, came about because of the scenario where when cars were, you know, in a dry, hot summer, cars might park on dry grass and the heat of the exhaust system ignited the grass and they went on fire underneath the fuel tank of the car. And that's actually where that, that grass fire test name even came from. Wow, that, that's a level of testing I never thought of. So it's just like those YouTube videos you see of the high-performance cars bursting into flames, the engine's going on fire. It's related, but it's actually it's a different thing. Actually, so what, what, you, what you see with those um, videos is that's called a hot soak condition. So it's why you tend to see them with very high-performance cars, with supercars. So with those cars, there's a very high level of rejected heat, those very powerful cars. And what you're seeing there quite often is they might have been driving quite quickly, rejecting quite a lot of heat, and then they suddenly go into traffic or they go into an urban environment and they no longer have that airflow passing through the engine bay, taking that rejected heat away. And you get what's called a hot soak condition. You get this accumulation of heat, rapid buildup of heat, and then you know, if it happens at the wrong time, then some component can, can ignite within the car. Wow. And then just to clarify, is that why sometimes they try and drive away really quickly to put the fire out? I think that's more because maybe they didn't know don't quite know what they're doing. (laughs) 
Excellent, right. So take me back to the challenging aspects of fuel design. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So the um, I, I think probably of all of the things in fuel tank design, the most challenging aspect is actually the management of fuel vapor. So yeah, particularly for gasoline. So gasoline emits a vapor, you know, we'll all be familiar with that strong, slightly sweet smell, you know, it's, it's kind of a, people have a love-hate relationship, I think, with that smell, you know. But in a, so in a fuel tank, that's the vapor being uh, emitted or released. And that vapor is being released constantly from the liquid and it's rising to the top of the tank and it's pressurizing the tank. So fuel tanks are fitted with, there's a complicated array of sort of vents and valves in the fuel tank. And they carry out a number of different functions uh, to do with the vapor. So the first thing is there's a valve called an inlet check valve that restricts how much fuel can go into your tank. So it always retains a pocket of air at the top of the tank for vapor to go into. But then as well as that, you have um, you have vent valves that allow excess vapor to, to be released. But at the same time, in a rollover situation, if a car is in a maximum rollover, the fuel can't release out. So those, those valves have to allow the vapor to go out, but not allow the fuel to go out. So it's a, it's a very complicated system of vents and valves in there. That's incredible. So there's a hell of a lot going on in what is essentially what I thought previous to this podcast, a box full of liquid is a hell of a lot more than that, a lot more complex. So I know that among other systems, you have responsibility for the fuel system on the Jaguar CX-75, the gasoline electric hybrid supercar, just to get that right, which is also the James Bond baddies car. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So um, I was an employee of Williams and uh, Williams were developing the Jaguar CX-75. So I was on that car on the first prototype phase. I was the lead propulsion system engineer. So I was responsible for all of the engine systems, including the fuel system. Um, as you say, it was a gasoline electric hybrid. It was it was a very complex car and had very aggressive weight targets. So we were trying very hard to keep the weight down. And the combination of those two meant that the packaging space was, was at a premium. So I did some research where I had a look through the stores of the Williams Formula One Heritage Museum. Whoa, 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 whoa. You got into the Heritage Museum of the Williams Formula One for a bit of a rummage around? Yeah, I didn't quite just walk in and have a rummage around. Yeah, so I, I asked for permission to go in and, and I was kindly given permission to go in to specifically look at some of the old fuel tanks. So after looking at some of the old fuel tanks from the Formula One cars, I then made the decision that I was going to use a fuel bladder or a bag tank as, as it's known. So rather simplistically, a bag tank, it's a, it's a flexible structure rather than a steel structure. So it's made from a very strong, um, almost like a, a canvas-like material. And it's very strong and it's very uh, resist, resistant to impact and, and to piercing. So they're used extensively in, in motorsport because they're very safe. And so in a, in a high energy accident, they don't breach, they don't leak. But one of the reasons that they're not used in road vehicles is that the petrol attacks the material in, in, the, in the bag, the actual structure of the bag. And after a while, they emit fuel vapor. And in fact, they can actually leak, leak fuel. So I worked with uh, a supplier of these bag tanks and that supplier had developed a resistant material, a bespoke resistant material that it was able to hold the fuel without ever leaking or without um, releasing vapor emissions. The, the bladder itself, the bag tank itself, it doesn't have sort of st structural integrity. So if you pick one up, it will, it will sort of collapse in your hands. So it has to be designed in close conjunction with the chassis that supports it. And on the CX-75, 
the space for the fuel tank, the main space for the fuel tank, was a very long and narrow passage inside a carbon fiber tunnel sitting between the, the driver and the passenger. So it's a weird place to put a tank. That's quite a narrow, long space, but still very, very strange yeah. thing to put a tank. Yeah, it was. So the reason for that is so that car was a was a gasoline electric hybrid. So it was um, very densely packaged in in the engine bay at the behind the occupant cabin. So typically on a supercar on a mid engine supercar, the fuel tank is behind the driver and passenger um, ahead of the uh, the engine. It it was also there. There was a, a volume available for a fuel tank in the six seventy five, but it was so um, it was so small that we had to extend that fuel tank very forward in this tunnel between the driver and the passenger. Mm. And if it had reached production, it would have been just the set, as far as I'm aware, the second car ever to have a bladder after the Ferrari F40. That's right. Yeah, Ferrari F40s have fuel bladders, but they have to be changed every seven or seven or eight years because of this leakage problem. Yeah. So yeah, you're right, it would have been the yeah. second ever production car. So the CX-75 was a petrol-electric hybrid, and we know that now there's an increasing move towards um, hydrogen. So can you explore explore that for us, please? Yeah, so hydrogen has been, it's been trialed as a fuel source for many years with sort of limited success. Now there's the broadly, there are two methods of using hydrogen in an engine. So the less common version is the, the version that people tend to think of, which is to directly burn the hydrogen in the engine as an alternative to petrol. Now the first version of that actually Way back in 1863, there was a car called a Hippomobile, and it had a single-cylinder internal combustion hydrogen engine. But then we've got a big long wait until we get right up into the 1990s, and Mazda created some concept cars whereby their rotary engines could all could operate running on on hydrogen. And then in 2002, we see the first limited production run, and that was from BMW with a version of their 750 called the HL. So it was a bi-fuel engine, which meant it could run on, the, the same engine could run on gasoline or on hydrogen. Right. So for the manufacturers now, what is the most common preferred version for hydrogen? Yeah, right. So so that direct combustion is, is less common. The much more common version is a hydrogen fuel cell, or more specifically, what's called a hydrogen PEM fuel cell. And these, in effect, are hybrids. So... A hydrogen fuel cell, it creates electric charge, which then charges the battery, and the vehicle is actually driven by electric motors. So it's sort of like a, an onboard electrical generator that acts a little bit like a range extender in a, in a petrol electric hybrid. The PEM part of the name refers to a proton exchange membrane. So the fuel cell carries out an electrochemical process, and the hydrogen atoms are split into protons and electrons. And then this membrane, this proton exchange membrane, it allows the protons to pass through, but it stops the electrons from passing through. And it forces the electrons to sort of take a longer path around the outside. And when the electrons take this longer path, that's when um, that electrical charge is used to charge the battery. That's how we capture that electrical charge. And then when the hydrogen, when the, when the protons and the electrons sort of meet again at the other side, they react with oxygen. And the um, the output from that is water. So water being H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. So the emissions of a hydrogen fuel cell is, is water. And actually, fuel cells, um, they were developed heavily in the space race. 
during the space race, actually. So um, rockets use hydrogen and oxygen uh, for combustion of their of their primary engines, but it meant that there's also a supply of hydrogen and oxygen on board. So in a lot of spaceships, the our hydrogen fuel cells were used to generate electricity and also to generate water on board. Very good. So it was a dual system. The byproduct was what was used on board. Yes. Um, so when were the fuel cells then first used on cars? So the first uh, car was actually 66, so sort of around the time of that space race. So it was a Chevrolet a prototype um, called the Electrovan. It was based on a Corvair van. Um, Corvair van is a sort of a six or eight seater van. But this one, the, the fuel cell was so large, it took up the whole of the rear of the van. So it effectively just made this van a, a two seater. And it was only a, it was only a, a, a prototype. And again, there's a bit of a weight right again in the, in the 1990s. So this thing where we see increasing push towards emission reduction, and we had a, a renewed interest in hydrogen fuel cells. Now, you might not think it, but most of the major manufacturers globally have created a fuel cell concept car. And in fact, quite a few of them have built limited production numbers for use as lease or fleece, fleet vehicles. But when we think about cars for sale for the general public, there's really three manufacturers, three Japanese manufacturers. So Toyota have been producing variant of a car called the Mirai for quite a few years. Honda previously had a hydrogen version of the Tucson and now have a hydrogen version of the Nexo. And up until last year, Honda had a fuel cell, a hydrogen fuel cell car called, called the Clarity. Right. So I know there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of miscommunication around hydrogen, but why is there such a limited uptake for this technology? Yeah, there is. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion at the moment. So in short, the main advantage for the user of a hydrogen fuel cell is, well, apart from the emissions being water and reduced tailpipe emissions, the main advantage for the user is that you can refuel hydrogen quickly. So you can refuel it similar to how you refuel a, a petrol or diesel. The, the, the main problem is that hydrogen, hydrogen isn't found naturally. So it has to be processed from other sources, so primarily water. And that process of extracting the hydrogen is energy intensive. And then also, because it's not a readily available fuel source, you know, there's a sort of a, there's an inverted circle. You can't find it at many petrol stations, so therefore there isn't much of an uptake. So at the moment, hydrogen as a fuel, it tends to work best for commercial or fleet vehicles that operate from a depot. So whereby at the end of their run, they return back to a depot where there's a controlled source of fuel and the supply of hydrogen can be, can be controlled at that depot. Okay. So in your own experience as an automotive engineer, have you worked on hydrogen fuel cells? Yeah, I've, I've had a, a few programs where I've worked on them or sort of touching them. The main program being a prototype development program, which is done in conjunction with Nissan and the US Department of Transport. And that was to develop a hydrogen fuel cell range extender of Nissan's electric um, NV200. And that was trialed in a number of municipal cities in the US. That's very interesting, Mike. Thanks very much for taking us through the um, fuel systems today. Very interesting. In our next uh, episode, it's going to be on safety systems. Mike and I are going to explore the story of a very famous vehicle whose fuel tank position had far-reaching consequences for car design and the industry as a whole. See you next time. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane, and you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. 
Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you on to our next episode where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now. <music>